Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today, well, one of my favorite guests, it was his third time on, Dr. Tommy Wood, one of the most fascinating, interesting people you could ever listen to, just the way he thinks carefully, understands what he says. I, I leave every one of these conversations just feeling like I've, I've understood more than I thought I would. Just a fascinating conversation. Probably the biggest takeaway in this one was that uh, to some degree we're losing the joy of food and the joy of sleep and the the joy of physical activity because we're probably overanalyzing and trying to get so much out of it that we've forgot that these things can be joyful. So some big takeaways in this one. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I always do. He, he's, he's a great man. A little bit of housekeeping before we go on. Thank you so much for listening. I do truly appreciate it. And if you do enjoy the show, I'd love you uh, to share it on your social platforms. It means the world to me. It really does. If you want to go over to any question, you, know, you can download download that on your um, iPhone or Android. That's any question, one word. Go ch- check out the app. Uh, you can ask questions to all the incredible experts we have over there and, and listen to just all the answers that are already there. Dr. Tommy Wood, after after this episode, is looking like he's going to be on there at some point in this next very near future. So you'll be able to ask him some follow-up questions to this uh, episode as well. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I truly did. And remember, success comes to those who enjoy just one moment longer. All right. My guest today is joining me for a chat for the third time. Yes, He's that good. He was on episode (laughs) 30 and 53, and you really need to go check those out. Do yourself a huge favor. They're absolutely fantastic episodes. I just want to do a real quick uh, recap of his background. He, He received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. He's currently the Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Neuroscience at the University of Washington, and his research program focuses on factors associated with brain health and function across lifespan. Add to that, he competes in powerlifting and CrossFit and understands the benefits of physical activity for overall health. I truly just love these conversations. So it's been too long. I'm excited to have him back. So welcome. And thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Dr. Tommy Wood. How are you doing, mate? I'm great. I'm excited to be back. Thanks thanks so much for, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I know we haven't recorded a pod for a year, but you and I have had the occasional I throw you, ask you questions throughout the year. <laughs> and you've always been incredibly responsive, even with the amount of things that you have on your plate. And, and I truly appreciate you for that. Um, wh- where are you at the moment? I'm... Well, downstairs in my office, but uh, more broadly in <laughs> <laughs> in in uh, Seattle, in Seattle, uh, yeah. Seattle, Washington State. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good man. And, and and how's this year started off for you? You you warming up into the year? I did see you were, you were at a CrossFit course. What was that? End of January? Oh, uh, yeah, I did. Um, CrossFit Health had an online uh, conference that I did. Uh, a talk for and then a, a a panel discussion as well about longevity strategies. But yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. It was nice to take part in that. I, I'm not a CrossFitter anymore, but I have been in the past and there's a lot of things that I really like about their approach and their community in particular. So yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, it's been a, a, a decent start to the year so far. It's been pretty busy, but productive, which is, which has been nice. Yeah. Lots, lots of different things going on. Nice. Good man. I, 
What do you? What would you call yourself if you're not a CrossFitter, a powerlifter? What do you, I mean, I watch you on Instagram, and you always seem to be lugging <laughs> these huge weights around your house. Uh, yeah. So about 18, 18 months ago or so, I decided I'd like to start trying competing in strongman. So that's, I guess, that's what I would call myself an amateur no way. strongman. I could compete in novice <laughs> novice strongman competition. <laughs> Uh, so, so that, that's, that's what I'm usually training for. Uh, if you, if you, if you see, see something on Instagram. Okay. I'm going to have to ask you a bit more on that because I know nothing about strongman except for watching, you know, when it's on ESPN or whatever, randomly the world's strongest men. Are these competitions uh-huh. going around? Is that something that people can do? Oh yes. So a lot like, um, if you competed in CrossFit or powerlifting or, you know, running five Ks, there's lots of small local competitions that, that are being run. So there's two main uh, governing bodies for strongman in the US and then they'll sanction a, co- a small competition in a local gym and those are the ones that, yeah. that I'm competing in that's 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 the level that, that I'm at and I'm very, very happy there and, and it's like picking up those round stones that are really awkward and hard to carry like there's that whole yeah the atlas stones yeah so, atlas so stones. There's thank lots, you yeah. yeah there's there's lots of different what's what's nice about it that I really enjoy is that it's, it's actually quite varied. Mm. So you'll have static strength. So it could just be like a, a single one rep max on a deadlift, but it could also be uh, repetitions of deadlift over time and lots of different types of deadlifts. Say, so the last competition I did, they had a car deadlift. Um, and then, yeah, <laughs> at the stones, um, which are the big round stones, but then a competition I did also had just like a natural stone essentially ground to overhead. So it's just this rock you've never seen before. You're not really sure what the weight is and you just have to pick it up and put it over your head, uh, pulling cars, um, just all this kind of stuff. So there's, there's the sort of absolute brute strength component of it, but there's also a more dynamic component being able to move with a reasonable amount of weight, which, which I, which I really enjoy. I just think that's fascinating. I, how do you go? I mean, are you successful? Are you competitive? <laughs> uh, well, so I compete in as, and this is also one of my favorite things about strongman. I weigh a hundred kilos and I compete in the lightweight division. What is a hundred kilos in pounds? 220 pounds. 220 yeah. pounds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's depending on the, depending on the federation. So I, I compete as a novice lightweight, which is basically like the the groundest entry level. Um, <laughs> and in one federation, the cutoff is 220 pounds and the other um, it's 231, I think. So depending on the competition, I can be a, a, just above or below uh, my sort of fighting weight of 220. Yeah. Yeah. So in the category that I'm in, novice lightweight is usually the one that probably has the most people in it. Cause you know, just people around the gym will just show up and compete. Mm. So there's usually maybe six to 10 people in my, in my category and I've come fourth and third in my last two competitions. <laughs> and actually it. there's, there's a benefit to not winning because as soon as you win a novice competition, you then have to compete in an open category and I'm not strong enough to do that. So <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of hoping to just like hang out in novice for a while. It's, a, it's amazing. I mean, without getting, I guess I am getting really to the point picky on this, but like, what are you lifting? What are the kind of markers? I don't know. When we talk about your power lifting type numbers. It's le- cause it's less um, sort of, I guess, rigorous in terms of technique often it's do it however you can. So, so, so maybe like the car deadlift that I did last time, I think we did, we did reps in a minute, 
I did 16 or 17 and it was probably 400 and something pounds like in the hands, like, cause it's on a, it's Whoa. on a lever, right? You're not lifting up the whole car. We had a keg press. So like a keg is obviously a very awkward shape. Yeah. I think our one was 130 something pounds. We had to get as many reps of that as possible. I think I got three or four. Oh, the overhead pressing stuff is, is the stuff I'm not very good at. In that competition, there was also a wheelbarrow. So like a 600 pound wheelbarrow you had to move. Then you had to lift 200 pound sandbags over a, over like a, a platform thing. So it's, it's that, oh. that's kind of like the, the, the weight that, that we're working with. Wow. And do you, and we, and, and I'm sorry, we will move on to the brain and everything <laughs> else I want to talk about, but I'm sorry, I'm fascinated by this because I have no clue about it. So do they tell you before you get there that you're going to be lifting cars or, anything, or you just turn up and you go, Oh, there's a car there and there's a keg there. No, there's, um, they'll tell you the events beforehand. So my mm. next uh, competition is, is coming up in May. I know four of the five events that one of the events that this, this time they've said is a mystery event. So I know four of the five events. Mm-hmm. And then that gives me a chance to either sort of simulate that in the gym. Uh, my coach, uh, Mike Nelson, is, is really good at, if I don't have the exact equipment, he'll figure out something that I can do with my equipment that's really, really similar to what I'll have to do on the day so I can practice it. Uh, and then also they'll they'll usually tell you the weights that you're going to be working with, so I know what I need to be able to do on the day. Yeah, well, mate, you're an enigma. It's like I, <laughs> I bring you on here and I read out this introduction, and it's all studies and education and brain, and and then you know you, you're into this world strongman competition. It's just I love the diversity of your life. It's just fantastic. So, um, but anyway, let's get into it. The brain health. I really want to, uh, dive into this and learn as much as I can. Um, a little bit about sort of how we can look after it and then how we can optimize it and, and just use it, use it better. Um, but I have one thing I have to ask you, and I like this quote from Wedding Crashers, so you have to excuse me when Owen Wilson is using one of his pickup lines. And he says, you know how they say we only use 10% of our brains? I think we only use 10% of our hearts. Anyway, he does get the girl, but <laughs> is there any truth to the 10% of the brain part? No. <laughs> okay, so let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think there was, but I, I just wanted to make sure that I had the right person to ask that question to. Um, you, do you know what? That, that stuff pops up all the time. I've seen other, uh, yeah, particularly in you know, uh, movies and things. I've seen other movies that they talk about like 40 versus 50% of the brain. But like, no, the, the human body is incredibly good at uh, getting rid of things that aren't useful that mm. take up a lot of energy, right? And obviously the brain is is one of those things. And if you weren't using it, you would lose it. And that's obviously probably the biggest component of maintaining long-term brain health that we'll obviously talk a lot about for the rest of the podcast. So yeah. no, if, if you were only using 10% of your brain, you would have a lot less brain. Yeah. Because you, you'd only keep what you just get using. rid of it. So yeah. you're always using 100% of it, even if you're only using 10% of it to begin with, you're back to 100% because it gets rid of the 9%. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to sort of discuss the brain and, and both the negative impacts that we're, we're kind of doing to it each and every day and obviously the positive impacts and the effects that we can have on it. Um, and I just sort of understanding how much control we each have as individuals on our brain. And probably I want to start with one of my favorite topics and that is sort of... Uh, visualizing and understanding the mental 
way that we can try and control our brains and our thoughts, choices, and, you know, then leading to actions. So I'm just curious as to how much negative impacts can affect the the life of our brain and, and does it weaken our brain if we surround ourselves with sort of negative impacts, whether that's media or just being around negativity? That's a very interesting question. And I guess it depends on your lens. So obviously, if we think about ourselves as the animals that, that we are, mm. your main goal is survival. Mm-hmm. So if you learn from your environment and interactions that things feel bad or feel painful or are stressful, then you will create behaviors and patterns in order to protect yourself from those things. And so this is, this is a big part of people who've had previous traumas as those sort of imprint them, imprint onto behaviors into the future. They are protective things as the brain sort of has to adapt to that exposure or experience or, or set of experiences. And it is partly, um, you know, pure, pure survival. So if you're thinking about trying to optimize your survival, then these are probably good things. However, in modern society, often we are encoding experiences that are not sort of existential threats Mm. as those things. So they feel, or they create feelings and behaviors that would be very normal if this was a thing that was actually going to you know, threaten our lives. Right. Um, and then we respond accordingly. Uh, but that's not really true. So then they can become maladaptive in that way. So <clears throat> it really depends on how you think about what it is the brain is trying to do. You know, we, we obviously know that these things have a lasting impact and can change our behavior and our physiology. So in that way, if they're creating then behaviors and feelings and emotions that allow that prevent us from doing things that we would want to do otherwise, then, you know, from that lens that, you know, it's, it's having a negative impact. We also know that chronic stress or certain chronic stresses in certain people are associated with changes in cognitive function over time. Mm. So, you know, one of the, one of the arenas where they've looked at this is in, in people who have work stress, just because that's something that's quite easy to quantify. Whereas, you know, family stress, financial stress, those are things that are very difficult to pick up in research or it's difficult to do that research. But whereas in a, in a work environment, you can sort of like gather everybody together and look at these various things and then look at their outcomes. And in people who have chronic job stress and where the, the stress is something that they don't have control over it. So obviously you can imagine in some kind of hierar- hierarchical um, mm-hmm. professional structure, there are some people who have a lot of stress put onto them by their superiors, say, and mm-hmm. they have very little control over that. That stress that you don't have control over in, a, in, in the work environment, I think it's, it probably applies to all other aspects of life, that is associated with an increased risk of cognitive decline and dementia. Mm-hmm. You know, being exposed to this continuously can then have a negative impact sort of long-term on the brain as well. I mean, I love how you put that but it's fascinating we're drawn to negativity as a survival mechanism. And mm. uh, it's interesting. I guess my question then, talking about that um, chronic stress and the fact that we might have no control, say, in 
one area of our life. Could you look at it like filling a glass full of stress? And if you can take away some of the other stresses in your life, you can probably put up with the work stress or whatever that stress that you have no control over. Is that a way to sort of try and absorb some of that? Yes, I think so. You know, everybody's going to be stressed from from time to time. And, and often it's going to sort of persevere for very long periods of time. Mm. And I think there are two strategies that, that are beneficial. So, so one where you can say, yes, you know, I have my bucket of stress. And if I, you know, minimize stress in other areas or allow myself time to recover from that stress, uh, or, and I have the capacity to do that. Now, now the, the important thing to remember is that, say, certain populations of people may be working in jobs where they have that level of uncontrollable stress, mm-hmm. or maybe they, have to have, maybe they have to work multiple jobs where that's the case, and then they never get the chance to rest and recover. Mm-hmm. And this is usually people who are already uh, disadvantaged uh, socially in, in multiple ways. It's, it's almost even a privilege to be able to rest and recover from stressful things because not everybody gets to do that. Mm. Um, but if you are able to do that, then uh, I think you offset a lot of the load of that stress. It's important to not feel helpless in that. So acknowledging this stress and then you know being able to mitigate it in other areas of your life, I think is important. Mm. And then there's... Another part of it that that I think is quite important, and it, it essentially comes from Stoic-like philosophies, which is that you should control the things you can control, and the things you can't control, you know, don't worry about it. And obviously, it's very easy and flippant to say, "Don't worry about it," but uh, I think you you know what I mean. So you can mm-hmm. like contr- try and control the controllable factors, and then acknowledge that there are things that go on in your life that you truly have no control over, and then just accept that that's part of part of the process even even though sort of accepting that, that can be really difficult to do I'm, I'm kind of trying to get my head around going okay things like media for me has been an easy one to flip off um mm-hmm. i feel like it's a lot of things that i can't control <laughs> and for the most part i find it just to be negativity and so i just we haven't had tv for 20 years and we haven't watched news or anything, but you still get it through these days, more social media. Um, I almost get to the point if I, I know if I'm going to turn on Twitter, I'm not going to feel good after it. So I don't <laughs> turn on Twitter. It's just, it might be the people I follow. I don't know what it is, but I don't need politics. I don't, I don't want it in my life because I can't control it. Um, <clears throat> so for me, it's always starting with the, the smallest things that I can control. Um, and then I feel like that frees me up and gives me that extra time to fill it with positive effects, you know, positive audio books or spending time with the family or walking on the beach or any of those things. Is that a way to kind of manage that? Is that how you've seen it? Yeah. You know, to, to a certain extent, uh, absolutely. You know, the, if you, you know, if there are certain things that are absolutely, con- con- well, so you talk about not being able to control what happens on Twitter. That's sort of like, Twitter is just completely insane and I avoid it at pretty much all costs. Um, and so, so yeah, that is one thing that, it, you know, the process of what happens on Twitter, you can't control, but you can control your exposure to it. And that's obviously the case with all things on social media. And that's, that's an important mm. thing to be able to regulate. However, you also, you know, in other areas, you should be able to acknowledge that there are things that you're going to be exposed to. You have no control over the exposure or what happens during that exposure just like we're talking about the job example, right? You have to have the job because you need to earn money, you know, feed your family and you have 
probably in that scenario, maybe not that many options for switching job and the job is stressful and you have no control over it. So in that scenario, you know, there are going to be things that we have no control and you, you can't change that, but you have to be able to acknowledge and deal with elsewhere. So the reason why I'm saying this is just that you can't just say, well, everything's like Twitter and I'm just not going to do it because I don't like it and it stresses me out, right? There are going to be these things that you're going to be exposed to. They're going to be stressful. You're, going, you're not going to have the control that you want and you're going to survive it and come out the other side um, and, and hopefully be able to you know, rest and recover and adapt uh, elsewhere. Can we though, when you, you talk about those uncontrollables, can we at least control our thoughts about that job or... I'm sure you've got stories where people are doing whatever kind of jobs that, that, that aren't great and, and, and others would call them stressful and, and yet some people are a, able to sort of rise above it and change their their behaviour and their attitude towards it. I mean, because it, it, to some degree that's still controllable, the thoughts that we have about what we're doing, right? Yeah, and that is, yeah, that, that comes back to a lot of uh, other stoic type philosophies, uh, uh, absolutely. And there's... There's, you know, some people will talk about the fact that there is no such thing as stress. It's how you are responding to stresses. And ultimately you do have some control over that, which is true. And so like, I guess my favorite story uh, in that arena is a friend of mine uh, who is basically uh, a former special forces operator Mm. and was like the pointiest tip of the pointiest sphere from a military perspective. And we were talking about stress and stresses and when, when people are stressed, you know, and he'll tell incredible stories about being under fire in, you know, all of the, all kinds of places around the world and being calm as a cucumber, who was a medic. So he's patching up multiple people at the same time, whilst also under heavy fire and returning fire. And, you know, hmm. probably his heart rate was 70. Wow. Um, but where he was most stressed in the whole world is standing in line at the checkout at Target. Right. So, so this is, this is the thing is, is, is you adapt and you, yeah. you know, the different things are stressful to different people and you, and you do have control and you do have control over that. Absolutely. However, you know, there, there is obviously, uh, an unconscious com- component to all of this. And this is where, you know, we talked about traumatic experiences earlier. There are these subconscious or unconscious pathways that your mind will take as you respond to things because again it's part of this survival response um so it's very easy to say oh yeah you know you have control over how you respond to any particular exposure and in reality that's that's just not true um there's there's so much i think what's very I guess disappointing about a lot of the way that neuroscience is sold nowadays, particularly to the public, you know, and people who are interested in, in science, is that we're kind of sold as these robotic, systematic, rational beings, right? Mm. Do these 10 things to improve your focus um, 15% or whatever. And or, you know, do this to respond in this certain way. And like humans don't don't work like that. Like mm. it's it's just so much more complicated than that. And uh, I think that we sort of use neuroscience as this kind of sexy thing that we can that we can sort of leverage to improve all these things as part of our lives. But humans and their emotions and responses are so much more complex than that. And I would really recommend that anybody who's interested in this read Behave by Robert Sapolsky because it basically sets up like throughout your... In- when you react to a certain thing, you say a certain thing, Everything that's happened throughout your entire life 
and maybe even before you were born, as certain epigenetic markers were laid down uh, on the genes that then became you. Mm. All of those things line up to determine your response. Mm. So to imagine that we're these completely rational beings that have complete control over our emotions is just is just not true. And I find that fascinating, mm. but I also appreciate that people will find that potentially frustrating because we're often sold that we're able to do this when in reality it's much, really much harder than that. It's so great you bringing this up. I was chatting with Laura last night and we actually got an hour away from the kids. So we actually had some sensible adult conversation for a moment. And, and, and we were, we were discussing, she's right into the microbiomes and, um, you know, really trying to understand what's going on, you know, at the gut and, mm. um, and, and has actually read a fair bit of, um, uh, Lisa Mailings, um, Lucy, Lucy Mailings, Lucy excuse me, Lucy Mailings, uh, work that I know you've worked with Lucy a fair bit mm. on those things. Yeah. And, and I kept saying, look, I, I feel like there's so much more than, I feel like we are so complex, exactly what you've just said. And we almost both ended up going, this is why a God or people start to believe in fate or that we are almost just here and the journey's already been written and we're just on for the ride. You know, and it's like, cause you, the more, almost the more you study how much control or how much we think we can do, the more you step away going, wow, I don't know actually how much we actually do have control. Over. Maybe we are just on for the ride. I mean, do you ever sort of just feel that way? Um, to a certain extent, uh, absolutely. And I've, I find it partly comforting, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, like, you don't really matter. Like nothing, you, like on a, <laughs> on a geological, no, it's true. On, on a, on a geological timescale, yeah. like meh, like humans, particularly individual humans, just a teeny tiny little blip that doesn't even count. <laughs> um, and I find that very interesting and, and partly in a certain way comforting, but, but otherwise other people that can certainly trigger this huge existential crisis that, that can then have, then have negative effects. But, but yeah, because of all these things that line up to result in every action and reaction that you have over decades uh, previously, mm. that obviously you can't change now, to a certain extent, you have less in the minute control th- than you think you do. Mm. But obviously, that doesn't mean you have no control. You can certainly build new habits and new thought patterns and, and retrain things uh, as an active process. Um, it's not that you, you always have the control that you think you do. The, the term mental health gets thrown around it seems very generalized these days and 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 depression thrown into that um i kind of have my own thoughts on that but i'm i'm you know i, I kind of see there's a spiral that goes down and there's a spiral that can go up and we got to try and get ourselves at least to neutral so we then can have somewhat of a direction of where we're going to go with you know our, our moods and and how our life will go but when you when you hear this in your line of work you know, you're probably surrounded by this kind of conversation quite often, you know, when you hear depression and, and mental health, is this a new thing? Is it just because we're starting to talk about it more? What, what are your thoughts on, on that? It's probably a, a bit of both, mm. but, you know, as we, you know, focus on these things and we acknowledge how your environment and your relationships and your work affects how you feel about things we're going to you know see more of it and and talk about it more and i think that's important uh, because this obviously has lasting lasting impact and 
I want everybody to have a meaningful and fulfilling existence and, you know, be supported and get the things mm. and the love and the care that they need. And I think everybody deserves that. Um, and they don't get that. And so it's, it's important to talk about that. There are interesting things that have, that have happened um, over time. So if you think about the latest generation of, of young people who sort of now there's one or two below me or you and I, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're coming into a world where there's sort of the rigid you know, work environment isn't there. The sort of the guarantee of, of jobs aren't there. You're not paid enough to be able to uh, you know, buy a house like uh, the, the baby mm-hmm. boomer generation were. So there's a lot more insecurity and uncertainty about long-term stability, be that from uh, food security, housing security, health. And, you know, and then at the same time, you're sort of being asked to work all hours of the day and hustle. You, you, know, you have to create a side hustle. And if, if, you, if you do something that you enjoy, then you have to monetize it because that's, that's sort of like the, the economy that we, work, that we work and exist in. Mm. And then there's no joy from those things anymore. And there's, there's, there's sort of like this continual stress that we talked about. So I think that there's sort of a bit of, of both of the things that you said that we're thinking about, about this stuff more so it comes up more frequently, but equally we're maybe creating an environment for people where you, you're going to get uh, more mental health issues because of this lack of, of stability and certainty. It's an interesting conversation on its own merit because you think about hard times in the past um, and we don't have to go that far back. I mean, hundred years or so. And I mean, there was hard times then, you know, in terms of food, water, <laughs> shelter, forward to where we are now, some things are much, much easier and better, right? I mean, for the most part, access to food, shelter, and water are more prevalent than we probably ever had. But we also are on all the time, that we're actually never getting to ground ourselves and and reboot. And so then it creates this, I guess, anxiety or you're in this sympathetic state, you know, fight or flight, and so you become exhausted, you know. So we're, we're living with the with the basics that we probably weren't getting 100 to 200 years ago as prevalent, but we've, we're, we're on, so we're actually never really getting to turn off. I mean, I, I'm just trying to always get my head around as to what's happened in society recently to the fact that we, we now have, yeah, me- mental depression and, and things. And I'm like, well, hang on, we have so many things in place. What's the trigger? You know, what, what, what is the thing that's causing, causing this? And um, so I'm curious as to your thoughts even a bit more on that. Uh, I think the way you frame it makes a lot of sense. So as society and technology have advanced, you're right that we've sort of moved away from what I would call simple, sort of normal environmental ecological stresses, which might be not having access to food or, or water or being hunted down by the neighboring tribe. Mm. But there's always previously been, you know, there will be some period where that is no longer the case. We know that the human body becomes more physiologically resilient when it's exposed to brief periods of stress that you're then allowed to recover from. So exercise being the perfect example. Mm. And we, we do a lot more of this. Now we have to create these stresses 
uh, in the modern environment because they don't truly exist. So periods of fasting or cold or heat, these things that the body, you know, the body beneficially adapts when it's exposed to, as long as the exposure is enough to drive adaptation, but not cause injury. And then you have, you have a period uh, mm. to, to recover from it. And those are the traditional stresses that our bodies and our brains are used to dealing with. And those are the historical hard times that, that you talked about. And those are, you know, essentially how the human was sort of crafted, mm. you know, evolutionarily. And those are not the exposures that we have now. So not only are we lacking these very important inputs that drive beneficial physiological adaptation, we're then also exposed to these continuous, never-ending, even if they're just you know emotional um, or psychological mm. uh, stresses or exposures. Or just uh, dopamine through, hits or whatever, yeah. constant little hits of something. <laughs> yeah, it's just very different. And you're right, there's, no, there's never a period to rest and recover, which is what we truly need. Mm. So I think there's the shift of where stresses are coming from and our ability to rest, recover and adapt uh, from those. Mm. It's an interesting topic. Again, I was talking to Laura about, um, uh, I'm, I'm all about the brain. My, my interest is all about the brain and, and, uh, and hormonal responses and, and I guess what we can control and, you know, and what we think has a direct impact on our physiology. I've quoted you so many times over the last year with that one because I just, I love that. And, and Laura's all about the gut biome. And so it's become last night, I was saying, no, no, no. If I had told you, you know, you had to walk across this 30-foot plank and it was on the ground, you'd have no problem doing it. If I put it between two 40-story buildings, you'd be like, no, thank you. But if I put our two kids on the other side of that plank and the other building was building, you would immediately go do it. Your, your mind over matter, you would, you would do it. But then we came back to the fact that that was a spare-of-the-moment type thing that you could do it once or twice if you had to, but there's no sustainability in that that purpose, that reason, that that control that you felt like you had. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, can some of life's health concerns we have, especially around mental health, can we solve that through just finding purpose in what we're, we're trying to do? To a certain extent, yes. Because I think that's sort of one of the core things about humans mm. is that we need to be needed or to feel to feel useful mm. and again historically that's something that i think we've had you know if you even if you go back to say hunter gatherers you know everybody has a everybody has a purpose or a role in the group mm. more recently you know people had these very sort of well defined uh, roles in society and there was few enough people <laughs> that everybody could have their defined role and, mm. and, act that, and act that out. And I don't think that necessarily exists anymore. And so finding some way, you, you feel you have a purpose and there are things that you, you know, people that you interact with or things in the world that you do that you can derive meaning from. I think that's, that's an important thing for long-term mental health. I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. If that makes sense, there are lots of other things that, mm -hmm. that will come into that. But yes, I, I think you know having some you know, some feeling of greater purpose and you know, some active role that you can play is you know an important component. 
A quick mini break just to remind you to go over and check out any question. You can either download that on your iOS or Android phone, just any question, one word, or you can use anyquestion.com forward slash Greg Bennett. So you can use anyquestion.com forward slash Greg Bennett. Yeah, it was interesting on the Any Question app, um, which I was talking to you about pre-show, somebody asked, you know, is success all in the mind kind of thing, you know, and it, it made me really think about what do I think of success, you know, and, and what is my purpose. And, and I, I started to think about it going and my athletic background was sure you're always striving to a destination. There was always a journey and quite often the destination was always a bit, yeah, it was okay. You know what I mean? It was like a little bit of joy, but it really is about the process and the day to day and the, you know, and I decided to answer that question by basically saying, look, I think I like to sort of get up in the morning, know that I'm going to try and have the three things for me is a bit like you just mentioned, you know, feeling valued in the workplace. So doing something where I feel like I've contributed and that doesn't mean somebody has to tell me I feel valued, but I actually feel like I, I did something that contributed then my health, do something for my health and, and then do something with my family, right? They're my big three. And then I can put my head on the pillow at the end of the night and go, that was a successful day. Is there a way that we can kind of train people to have that kind of mindset? Or is that, am I coming from a place of privilege? Like, you know, you mentioned earlier that some people just can't get to have that. I think the answer is yes, which basically means both, mm. right? There are two parts of this. Absolutely, you and I and the people that we interact with on a daily basis have the privilege to be able to think about these things in this in this way and and, and have those things because and, and absolutely not everybody does mm-hmm. so that, that that's one part of it we need to be increasingly open about this and you know one of the things that that i find very frustrating about like the health optimization world is people are focusing on these tiny minutiae that probably have an infinitesimally small benefit when there are vast swathes of the population that don't even get the basics of what you need mm. for, for long-term uh, health. But the other side of that is if you think about successful athletes, which is obviously yourself and Laura and a lot of the listeners and previous guests that you've had, you know, I think everybody or people are increasingly talking about how, or the, you know, you can kind of steal from, from uh, you know, Ryan Holiday's phrase of, right. The obstacle is the way, right. So mm. the, it's the, the process that's important, you know, people who are very quote unquote successful, or I think people who derive meaning from their successes are people who are focused on the journey rather than the end goal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and often you need to be, you know, high, you know, very focused and derive meaning and joy from that process, you know, in order to be successful in the first place, depending on what it is. So very, you know, highly successful athletes who are successful for years or maybe even decades, they focus on the process more than the outcome. Mm. The other day I was reading a, an article about Elliot Kipchoge, mm-hmm. who, who, who pretty much embodies this, right? He'll spend months leading up to a race. You see, you know, everybody, everybody talks about his training camp, which is incredibly bare bones. Other than maybe his fancy Nike shoes, there's no technology, there's, there's no creature comforts. You know, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's very structured. And it's, it's very much focused on the process. And then, you know, he may give you a fist pump when he's breaking a world record, uh, crossing the line of a marathon, 
and that's it. That's his celebration. That's just done. And then it's back, <laughs> back to the, back to the process. Mm. Obviously, no, you know, not everybody needs to, to think about that as the way that we achieve success. And I think one of the problems is that we sort of assigned success as, you know, if, if you're in my world, it's the number of papers you publish or the journals that you publish in or the level of uh, academic sort of rank that you achieve. And, or, you know, in, in some scenarios, it might be the salary that you get or, you know, those, those sort of material things that people are focused on is the exact opposite. And I think that that's where some of the, the, the issues come from. The, you know what it is that you consider successful. So in my experience, people who are sort of successful and content in their success are the people who f- focus on the journey rather than, you know, the destination. I, I, yeah, there's a lot in that one. I think one of the things I have the benefit of being, being older now and being 50 is you kind of, you get to the point, and I've been able to ha- experience a lot. So when I talk about privilege, I also mean the fact that I was, uh, but I, I was able to explore my passion and, and, and really embrace it and be a professional athlete. It was really quite extraordinary to be able to see the world. But now I, I remember sitting down with my finance mentor and just helping me sort of understand finance because it's not an area of strength. And um, he said, well, Greg, you know, what do you want with your life and finances? Whatever. I said, I want time. And he almost fell off his chair. He said, that's not something you're meant to understand until you're you know, 65, 70 or whatever. He said, you don't get that with, I think at the time I was like, you know, mid forties. And I, I said, no, I, I get that time is our number one commodity. So when we, for me personally, when I, you know, think of success, it's somebody that actually gets to have managed their time. And, and so fortunately, Laura and I are both on the same kind of journey here. And we kind of can sit back and go, I'd rather make less money. I'd rather say no to things. I'd rather live well, well, well within my means, you know, and, and have time as our number one commodity. So, but I also liked what you said there about to get the most out of almost every day, to have that grit, to understand that almost life, life is not meant to be easy and acknowledge that you're probably waking up to a, if things are happening that are tough and hard, that that's almost to be celebrated. Um, that's how I kind of look at it anyway, that sometimes I think, and I don't want my kids to have a soft life. You know, I don't want them to see, I, I've seen what softness does as well. You know, mm-hmm. I've surrounded myself with a lot of very affluent people and their kids are the ones that often we hear, you know, are having a lot of mental health and issues that go on. And it's just, for me, it's a, it's an interesting one to unpack all of that because there's we could talk on and on and on about it, but it's it's fascinating conversation. Let Thank me you. shift gear a little bit, and I love this phrase, and I'm going to forget the who said it, and it's about you know we are the closest five people around us is who we actually behave. How much of that is a an impact on our brains that our brains are we basically become the people that are closest to us. Do you think that's the case? Yes, uh, t- to a certain extent, and, and and I think you know often, uh, and if people go back and listen to our previous conversations or you mm-hmm. know, other times I've talked, you know, when you try and frame these things, try and understand them, obviously they make a lot more sense, or at least to me, from an evolutionary or survival context, because that I think is exactly what brings us to to, to where we are today. Mm-hmm. You know, there is this process of trying to fit in and mirror others, you know, in order to create your sort of insular tribe where you're able to survive and be successful. And then the people that are around you will shape that 
and you will respond in ways in order to try and fit in, for want of a better word, and become more like them so that so that you have your your kind of insular protected group. I don't know if it's five people or how 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 <laughs> many people it takes to to shape that. But actually one thing that I wanted to mention earlier that I think is relevant here is that in the era of social media, we are exposed to so many more people than hmm. we are maybe capable of dealing with. Hmm. And if you think about again, either hunt together hunt together uh, tribes or groups, you know, there may be tens or you know dozens, a hundred people and and that's about it. And those are the people that you'd be exposed to every day. And there are, there's, there's been similar theories in sort of corporate structures. Uh, I, th- I think the one that was most famous is, is Gore-Tex when it was, when it was starting up, hmm. they got to some certain limit of people in an office or, you know, in, in some group. And then when it got to that limit, they'd split it in two, uh, because you, you just can't optimally interact with, a, you know, above a certain number of people. I think it was, it was like a hundred, 120 people. They'd like then split split the whatever it was the yeah. office you know that's the kind of you know number of people that that we can probably safely understand you know in a way that we can actually understand interact mm. with people mm. I, I say this i was reading something by mark manson who is like my sort of favorite pop psychologist he's he's he's, he's brilliant and anybody wants to try and understand why humans behave the way that they do on sort of a very approachable level i absolutely recommend his work very highly cool and he was talking about how, you know, we always talk about, you know, there's so much negativity on social media, you know, just like everybody is just out there sort of, sort of trolling one another and saying all these terrible things, you know, or, you know, like there are all these douchebags in the world. Um, <laughs> and in reality, it's probably that those people always existed, hmm. but you just didn't interact with them. You didn't see them, right? So if you imagine that one in 10,000 people is like that, Right. If you interact with a hundred people a day, it's going to be weeks or months before you encounter a person like that. And mm. you maybe do it once a year. Whereas if you're on social media where you can be exposed to thousands of people a day, you may see multiple people like that every day mm-hmm. uh, because of that. And so it's not that necessarily social media is making these people different. It's just that you're being exposed to people that you normally wouldn't be exposed to. Mm. I wonder if, you know, part of the reason why you sort of you know, you struggle with your identity or your purpose or what you derive meaning from is because you don't have necessarily the same opportunity or way to construct a meaningful, supportive group of people around you because first of all, there's so many people and then you don't have the same quality of interactions that you would do otherwise. Mm. So, so, so that may be one of the ways that deriving our interaction through social media platforms online can be problematic you know, maybe just due to the pure volume of people that makes it very difficult to do that very human thing of, of becoming like those around you and sort of shaping yourself into a group where you support one another and that sort of like, you know, have, have similar work in order to you know, survive mm. together. Mm. How, how have you been able to manage that? I mean, especially over these last couple of years, uh, you're not on social media a lot. I don't, I mean, every now and then I see you post something. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about media um, social media. How how have you been? How do you manage it? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yes. So you're right. I mean, I like many people enjoy scrolling through Instagram. I won't pretend that I don't. I often find very interesting things there. Usually, I'm I'm drawn to, and you know, for a long time I was the same 
on Twitter, I'm sort of I'm drawn to people who will post things that I then find interesting and I can go and like dig into myself via mm-hmm. papers or, or stuff like that. So 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 I do find that. And then also, you know, I like to see pictures of boxers doing silly things because you know I find that enjoyable. Um, <laughs> so so like I won't pretend it's all about work and mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. I enjoy watching humans do amazing physical feats. That's a lot of what ends up on my. Instagram, I find it amazing yeah. what the hu- human body can do. Mm. But part of the way that I've dealt with it is that I just have, have chosen not to engage in a way that I think is expected of, of people nowadays. And it, so if you go back five or 10 years, you know, I was pretty desperate at a time to have notoriety, have people read my blog, listen to my podcast. I wanted to post stuff and get, you know, likes and clicks and interaction and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I thought that that was what I needed to be successful in that arena. Mm-hmm. And over time, you know, I just realized that that wasn't the case. And I'm very glad that that, that never happened, actually, to a, to a certain extent, because I, I very much enjoy and prefer um, how, I, how I operate now and, and the work that I do now. Um, so, so, so there was a time when I really tried to get into that, and it was definitely more, more t- uh, Twitter and, and Facebook at the time. I get it. That was also my, my agenda when I started. It was kind of like, yeah, I want to put myself out there. And it's like, no, now I just want to have nice conversations. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and part, part of it, and I think you've had the same experience, it's just like part the the process. So, I, so I'm, I'm thinking about during my PhD, I signed up to Twitter and was sending stuff out there and, you know, trying to get engagement from people who I wanted engagement from, um, you know, sort of well-known individuals in in various arenas the process of trying to stay up to date with everything. So like there were days when I do nothing, but sit on Twitter, trying to read everything and follow everything uh, and engage with everything. And I found that incredibly stressful. Mm. Um, luckily, you know, maybe only a, a few weeks of my life were, were sucked into that. Cause I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, so actually quite quickly, I, I accepted that that wasn't going to be me, but I see people that do that. And if they, you know, derive any kind of pleasure or joy from it. That, that's great, but it certainly wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found that incredibly difficult and incredibly stressful. So luckily I managed to convince myself that that was not something I needed to do. Well, let's talk about what we put into our bodies and and um, and how that affects our brains, if we could. I guess food groups, macro versus micro, how much should we be thinking about the effects on the brain of whatever we're eating? Is that is that the biggest thing we should be worried about? Honestly, I think people should probably spend less time thinking about that than they might. <laughs> oh, that was great. It was so unexpected answer. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, so there are there are two different, you know, two different groups, say, if we want to like group people. And and one is that again, if we talk about a large portion of society who, who don't have access to foods that are supportive of health or the time to prepare them or the, you know, the resources to be able to acquire them. Right. And, and food obviously has a huge impact on, on your brain. For those people, you know, I think it's incredibly important that we increase access and, and time and ability mm. to, to have these nourishing foods. It's incredibly important. I think the, you know, there are a huge number of nutrients that are, that are sort of vital for, for normal brain function. There's another group that are so hyper-focused on performance and health that they overanalyze every piece of anything that goes in their mouth. 
And that group, I think, could spend a lot less time worrying about it, and that would be beneficial. <laughs> and there's uh, some interesting data from, from psychology research that basically says that if you start to objectify and quantify something in your life, then it is much harder to derive joy from it. Mm. Um, mm. And think about sleep, think about exercise, think about food. If it becomes about this nutrient being good for this thing, that's going to improve this thing, you know, or, you know, there's this thing, which is bad for this thing, which is then going to cause this disease. Automatically, you can no longer derive joy from that thing. And food should be joyful. Yes, food is incredibly important for the brain and we could talk about it. But there's, you know, again, a group of people that I probably hang around with a lot and have worked with a lot where, you know, you become so hyper-focused on something that it's no longer, you know, th this amazing thing that, that should be part of nourishing yourself and interacting with others that, that creates benefit. And so as an example, you know, people have fetishized the blue zones as this, you know, mm. these paragons of health, you know, these are places in the world where people live to be, um, uh, you know, more than average live to be a hundred or 110, be super centenarians or super centenarians. And, you know, everybody gets so hyper-focused about what they eat. Um, and actually it's very diverse from, from you know, across the different uh, blue zones. And, you know, I think what really matters is that it's, you know, fresh and local and, and whole foods and, you know, whether it's got a certain amount of meat or beans or whatever in it, I think is, is much less important. So, you know, it's, it's local whole food that's been prepared, but mm. it, so it's, it's prepared as a group and eaten as a group. And it's this joyful thing that you, in, that you, that you have and you experience with, with others that mm. you, know, you love and respect. Mm. And I think that's, you know, an important part of food that we lose if we become hyper-focused on this micronutrient, micronutrient being essential for this mm. production of this neurotransmitter in this part of the brain, which is, which is how it's often sold to us. So that's, that's the motivation for the first part of my, of my answer, because I think food is just, is much more. That was so well said, by the way, I, 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 <laughs> you are a man of my own heart. Cause I have these debates and conversations with my wife, Laura, I'm going to let you keep continuing, but I just wanted to say fantastic. <laughs> so, so then beyond that, I mean, obviously like, like I mentioned, food has an incredible impact um, on the brain and you can come at this from, from multiple aspects. So, uh, we know that, say, refined carbohydrates or things that cause you know rapid spikes in blood sugar that can be um, particularly in stressful situations associated with uh, more uh, cortisol release. So it sort of like augments uh, the stress response. Is it can also sort of activate the sympathetic nervous system, um, and and these are generally um, you know highly processed nutrient poor foods. Uh, so like so there's there's this kind of physical physiologic response that's potentially detrimental that comes from those that kind of food processing uh, so so that's like one aspect that, that we can certainly talk about um you know maybe in terms of acute effects of a food you know how it affects your blood sugar because of these sort of other associated physiological responses that we've, we've seen in some nice studies i think that's probably the 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 most important thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then from a micronutrient perspective, we know that there are certain nutrients that, that are critical for, for long-term brain function. So certain fatty acids, particularly the omega-3 fats, are uh, very important. There's been there was some nice work in adults, a risk of dementia in the UK, randomized controlled trials, the, the Vitacog study run uh, from the University of Oxford, where they looked at supplementation with certain B vitamins. Mm -hmm. So folate, B12, and, you know, that's very important for long-term brain health and preventing hmm. uh, brain atrophy. But 
in that setting, you only benefit from that as long as you have enough omega threes kicking around. So those are those are things that are very important for for long term mm-hmm. you know, brain health and, and brain function. And more broadly, if you look at food patterns, um, there are some nice studies. Say uh, there was the Smiles trial. There was uh, I think it was done in Australia a few years ago, where they had people with major depression and they changed their food um, such that it was just more whole foods, right, and just like whole real food if that's the way to describe it. And so, so maybe something more similar to, you know, Mediterranean type diet. And with that, they saw significant improvement in people's um, you know, mental health or depression scores. So there are multiple different aspects of how food can affect the brain. And it's, you know, like we said, at the, at the beginning, it is, it is very important. And if you want to dig into any of those anymore, we certainly can. I, I love that. Um, it's been one of the things that I've kind of, when you look at sleep, like you mentioned, sleep, food, and physical activity, all of a sudden, everything has to be measured and be data and analyzed, and and the play is gone. The play mm-hmm. and the joy of doing anything anymore, you know, I, I, I know people that measure their, their sleep score every night. Um, for me, I don't want to do that because I, I'm naturally a fairly anxious person anyway, I, and I don't need to know that I didn't sleep well when I already probably okay. knew that I didn't sleep well. I don't need yeah. to have something tell me, you know, you failed. <laughs> like, and I, my point is I don't need to learn from that when I already know. And for me, going to sleep and getting rest is just about turning the brain off and just, you know, trying to hit that paralyzed state of just really trying to get that deep sleep. And when I wake up, I wake up and, and then I get going. Um, and it's a bit like physical exercise. Somebody asked me recently actually you know what kind of training I do and why do I do it and everything and what would I do if I could and basically all I'd want to do is body surf waves and go for a mountain bike because neither of those are exercise they're play Mm -hmm. and I happen to be getting fit and doing something good for my body Um, it's a consequence of of what I'm doing and I think the way you describe food then is we used to and, and some families I'm sure still do this but we used to be quite celebratory about every meal in an evening or spending time over the breakfast table or and I feel like going back to our early conversation life has sped up so much that we're actually missing those moments where we're we're missing the joy of some of the things that are right in front of us um so I yes I really like that I like that answer um what about um environmental sort of things around us uh, toxins whether it be what do you, okay, here's one for you because, again, I'm always these conversations with Laura and then I go to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> EMFs, Wi-Fi, 5G. What are your thoughts on those and the way they impact the brain and our mood and, and who we are? My thoughts are many and varied. And I guess my, my main summary is that I don't know what to think yet. Okay. <laughs> Yes. So the answer is that I don't know. Yeah. And I think that there are two camps and they're both, as far as I can tell, they're both wrong. But something in between is probably correct. One camp being that there's no way that these can have any biological effect whatsoever. And, you know, anybody who's worried about it is completely crazy. Mm. I think that that camp is wrong. And then there's another camp that says that, you know, everything that, you know, you know, all aspects of health and all the disease that that we currently have is, you know, is associated with or, or caused by, you know, electrification, um, man-made electromagnetic waves, um, electromagnetic fields, mm-hmm. EMFs, Wi-Fi. And I think those people are probably also wrong. However, 
there is probably a middle ground, you know, where there, where there is some truth, but I don't know the importance of it. So from a biological perspective, I absolutely think these things can have a biological effect. And we've seen some of it in um, some animal studies, uh, but also just from a pure physics perspective. We know that mm. uh, when your mitochondria move electrons, you know, through the membrane, which is essentially what a mitochondria does, you're moving an electron through a gravitational field that generates an, elect an electromagnetic field. That's basic physics. Mm. We also know that electromagnetic fields interact, right? You remember back in the day, you had a, a cathode ray tube TV, you put a magnet on top and it warped the picture, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can physically see that happening. We know this happens. So I think there's every reason to believe that external electromagnetic fields can affect our biology. There's you know, basic physics would tell us that that is possible. I don't know how much that matters, um, but I also know that we're being exposed to these things to a certain extent against our will. And what I mean by against our will is that if I walk out in the street, I'm bombarded by mm -hmm. you know cell phone towers and you know people's Wi-Fi routers, and I don't know about it, right? Because somebody else has control over that. And to a certain extent, we've deployed this across the entire world without really doing any, any sort of good randomized studies to look at the biological effects. So it's essentially just like this large experiment that we don't know the outcome of, which sounds, and I don't mean to be, you know, to catastrophize that. I think it's just true. No, it's just right? fact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just how it is. It's yeah. been deployed everywhere. People are being exposed to it and we don't truly know the, the effects. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's compelling enough data for some people to at least say, do you know what, we probably shouldn't expose our kids to all of this. So in certain countries, they don't have Wi-Fi routers in schools and stuff like that. Because they're just like, we, we just don't know like truly the effect of this. Mm -hmm. So we're at least going to protect sort of like, the, the developing brain, the developing body. And I've, you know, that, that seems reasonable enough to me. So there are obviously, you know, at governmental levels, the, there's enough evidence. And there are a huge number of studies that, that look at this in certain ways, where they say, do you know what, we, we think that there's, there's probably enough of a signal here to just say, well, let's be better safe than sorry. And, you know, I appreciate that. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't know how much this, this really matters. So if you were, you know, somebody who is, you know, eats good diet, moves frequently, sleeps well, has meaningful work and relationships, does it matter that you have a Wi-Fi router and you just got the latest iPhone that has 5G? I don't really know. My guess is it probably doesn't matter that much, but the overall magnitude of the effect um, I'm, I'm uncertain. Uh, it takes me back to when you were on last time. You were talking about, you know, we're far more resilient than we <laughs> than we probably give ourselves uh, kudos for, um, and and potentially even with all of this EMFs or Wi-Fi or 5G, whatever it is, um, potentially we're far more resilient than what even by bio the biology could be showing us. Um, do, would, when you go to sleep, do you turn your phone off and your Wi-Fi off or anything like that? Yeah, I don't. Um I don't have my phone uh, next to my bed mm. and the Wi-Fi router is sort of a, a large distance from the bedroom, sort of like the exact opposite of the house, but we don't turn it off. I can't say that there's any <clears throat> real reason. Uh, I don't do that specifically for that reason. I, I prefer to not have my phone by my bed just so then it's not a thing. I don't want to use my phone in bed. I don't want that to be a habit. <laughs> so you make it so you can't grab it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have it not... Uh, yeah, so that's the reason why I don't have it next to the bed rather than because I think it's like frying my brain yeah honestly. yeah no because we we had a guy come through measure our whole house up and like 
<laughs> we left a 5,000 square foot home in Boulder and we're in a 1,200 square foot apartment down here in Florida. And now we can't use any of the wall space either. So I feel like our, our apartment became about an 800 square foot apartment uh, <laughs> after he came through. And, um, and look, I, I'm all for... If it's simple enough that I can still do my work, so we hardwire things rather than having Wi-Fi in the house. And if we do, I don't mind. I, okay, go ahead. If it doesn't impact the what I need to get done terribly, I'm all aboard playing any game we want. Um, and I figure it can't hurt. Like you said, if, if we don't know, I'd rather err on the side of caution. So I'm happy to turn the Wi-Fi off at night. I'm happy to, you know, do, do these little things. Maybe it's not necessary, but it can't hurt. So I, that's how I kind of approach it. Um, but it's yeah. One one thing that one thing that I uh, I do do because there's there's some reasonable evidence for it is I you know unless I'm traveling from one place to another, I don't have my phone in my pocket. It always comes out of my pocket because there's some reasonable evidence that it can affect testicular function just mm. having your phone in, in your in your front pocket. What so about I, if you've already had kids and you don't want any more? Should you just put a couple of phones down there and just try and make sure the boys don't swim. <laughs> I think there's probably better ways to achieve that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, I, I want to take one more topic before I, I let you go. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. I, and this is more just about um, what we do with our bodies and the physical movement side of things because we haven't uh, discussed that fully and how that can – you know, I feel like everything we hear, like even you mentioned, you know, with EMFs and Wi-Fi, so long as you're moving the body, we can almost be, it's almost like cleansing. What is happening when we do move? What is happening to our chemistry that makes it so important? One thing that I, I love about science in this area is that we don't even really know. Obviously, we, we know certain things, but probably every month, you can look in some of the top journals, uh, science or nature or cell, and there'll be some new study that says, when you exercise, this thing is released that does this thing that benefits this thing. <laughs> so, and, and if we isolate it and then, you know, we inject it or we knock it out, then you lose the benefits. You know, this is sort of like the, the reductionist way that, that we sort of <laughs> slowly advance our understanding of, of biochemistry. Mm. The answer is, Lots of things happen. The vast majority, or as far as we can tell, everything is beneficial as long as it's not done to excess. The bit that I find most interesting is that, yes, we know these things happen, but actually there's a whole host of stuff that happens that we actually just have no idea about. Mm. Sort of as I've spent more time in this kind of health arena, I've kind of gravitated towards these things where I can say, you know what? I am very confident that you have this benefit or it does this or it mitigates this disease risk. But do I know exactly how that happens? No, I don't. But I am very confident <laughs> in in my recommendation and the benefit that you'll get from it. And yeah. I'm okay not knowing exactly the mechanism and pathway by which that happens. Yeah. And there are lots of people who will pretend to be able to explain all the pathways and mechanisms. Uh, but in reality, they don't know either. It just makes them sound fancy. I mean, certain things that people might care about in terms of when we move, we know that it dramatically affects glucose metabolism. So it improves glucose uptake uh, into muscles, having more muscle and moving it more improves glucose dynamics. And we talked earlier about how, you know, blood, blood sugar swings and changes can affect your brain and all these other aspects of, of your, of your health. Um, we know as we get fitter or we exercise, we uh, increased production of certain things that can support uh, brain health. So things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, there's a nice, um, you know, one of the first studies 
or it may have been the first study that showed in humans that you can increase the size of certain areas of the brain in adults. Because previously we thought that, you know, you just have like this fixed brain and then things slowly die over time and, and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and it, it doesn't show, or this study didn't show that you were like growing new cells, but you could see an increase in the size of this thing on on, a, on an MRI scan. So the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that's important for memory and is affected in dementia or dementias. When they took, I think they were adults, 65 plus, and they just made them walk for 40 minutes, three times a week, compared to a group that did stretching for 40 minutes a week. That was like the control group. And in the walking group, um, they saw an increase in the size of their hippocampi on MRI. So then, you know, there's lots of stuff that goes into that, you know, uh, total amount of water and all the proteins around the cells and all that kind of stuff. So like you're just improving the size and probably the structure of that area of the brain through exercise. And the more um, people improved in terms of their um, cardiovascular function, so they measured VO2 max, the better the improvement of VO2 max was associated with an increase in release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So like the fitter you are, the more you're moving, the more you're improving, the more you're producing this thing that then supports um, brain brain function. Neurotrophic means it's sort of like, you know, supporting, supporting neurons. Um, so those are, those are two things that I maybe focus on uh, the most uh, when it comes to exercise and, and brain health. Um, we know there's some, you know, when, when it's been looked at, there's some nice data that suggests that your muscle mass is correlated with your brain mass. So after you adjust for things like the size of your skull and stuff, which is obviously different from person to person, the more muscle you have, the more brain you have. Um, and this has been done, you know, across people who have both normal cognition and have some element of cognitive decline. So there seems to be a direct link between your muscles and your brain. Um, and, and people who have more muscle mass uh, perform better on certain cognitive tests. That was uh, uh, studies done from uh, UK, UK Biobank data in, um, in the UK, obviously. The process of having muscle, building muscle, and then moving it seems to be able to support the brain uh, and the rest of the body in multiple ways. That's fascinating. So someone like Arnie Schwarzenegger, his brain should be just... <laughs> I need to understand the correlations a little bit, but I get what you're saying. I, I think you in, in basically saying, look, it, it's worth lifting, staying strong, working those muscles because there is a direct correlation between that, that, that component and your brain, right? I mean, yeah, yeah in its simplest form. Because there's some people that don't put on muscle, but they can still be strong and fit and utilize the muscles oh, yeah. they have. And yeah, there's, there's a couple of important points. Um, the, you know, another thing that I didn't mention is that when you exercise, the process of exercising is actively anti-inflammatory, mm. right? So, and we, we know that chronic inflammation can, can affect uh, the brain in multiple ways. And that's because it creates an acute inflammatory response, right? So we talked about acute stresses that we can then recover from that, and that's beneficial. You, you sort of like adapt beneficially. Uh, exercise creates this sort of small, um, but uh, initial inflammatory response that then sort of decreases inflammation uh, overall. And that's, that's another way that it's beneficial. But when I talk about muscle mass and, and brain size and dementia, I, I don't mean that anybody, everybody has to be a bodybuilder in order to have optimal brain health. Um, and th this is part of the problem like uh, that, I've, that I've started to realize is that, so when I've talked about you know, muscle mass you know, is, is correlated with, with brain mass, then immediately people come up to me and they're like, well, I don't want to look like you and I don't want to do the things that you do. So like, does that mean that my brain will never function properly? And I absolutely don't mean that. 
when you're looking at muscle mass and strength and health outcomes, be that risk of cognitive decline or uh, mortality, you basically just need to be in the top 50% of the population. Mm. It, it basically is just the process of doing anything that actively uses your muscles yeah. in, in some way. So the, the ask is very, very small. Um, and the, but the benefits are very, very large. I think, I think that. you in, in future, when you do bring up that topic, you should probably lead with that because yeah. everybody does. <laughs> I immediately had Arnie in my mind and I'm uh, going, yeah. huh. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate the, yeah, I appreciate the, um, there's an optics problem. There's because, an optics problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get, and, 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 and people have a, a very negative connotation around resistance training and bodybuilding because, be, because of people who do that professionally or with a, with a very different goal in mind. But if I want you to be stronger and fitter because it's going to benefit your overall health. If you put yourself in the top, you know, 50% or a third of the population, that's, that's your uh, like minimum effective dose. Well, that's probably, that's where you get, that's where you're going to get the maximum benefit. And then from there, anything above that is, is very much diminishing returns. So we're talking about uh, some kind of resistance training twice a week for 20 to 30 minutes that covers all your muscle groups. Yeah. Right? That's it. You could do it with bands. You could do it with body weight. Oh, look, it doesn't it's, require it's a gym. Hard. It's not hard. Yeah. It really isn't. Yeah. And, and, and look, keep the bar low, you know, like in terms of, you know, we always hear, especially this time of year, people go, oh, I've got a trainer on. I'm going to go do two hours of training a day for five days a week. I'm like, no, you're not. You might be able to sustain that for a month, but I know you're not going to, you're not going to keep doing it. So find yeah. a goal that, you know, I can do, for me personally, it's 30 to 45 minutes of something every day. Other people, it might be, you know, three days a week, I can do an hour walk, whatever. But just, yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be so extreme. <laughs> and I no, think we live in not. an extreme society, don't we? Where, well, look at you. You're trying to be the world's strongest man. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm giving you a hard time. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I have two quick questions if we could. Um, and these are just a bit of fun, but well, one's uh-huh. fun. If you could sit with... Any three living people, who would it be and why? Sit and have a coffee, meal, whatever. I spent so long thinking about this. I was like, last night I was sat uh, <laughs> with, my, with my wife and we were watching uh, f- uh, figure skating yeah, uh, yeah. in the Winter Olympics. And I was like, I have to answer this question on a podcast tomorrow. <laughs> I just like, can't, can't think of, of three people. Um, but eventually... I did. And then I sort of like hit a bit of a rich vein of ideas. And then, then I had ended up with more than three. But I think if I had to choose three people right now, they would be Jamie Oliver, hmm. Idris Elba, and The Rock. Okay, let's go through those. Give me a quick why on each. Just uh, just because they're, they're fascinating people to me. But uh, J- Jamie Oliver, I've been a big fan of hmm. since I was a kid. Um, and obviously, I, I'm, I cook the vast majority of our food at home. Hmm. I very much enjoy, I very much enjoy cooking. Um, and he was basically the person who made it cool and mm-hmm. made it cool for mm-hmm. me, even when I wasn't very cool as, as a teenager, uh, which is certainly the case. Um, and, and then, you know, like all people he's ha- has his flaws and, and issues, um, but had a commitment to improving people's lives through food, mm-hmm. like be it, uh, he did this whole school dinner thing in the UK, improve, trying to improve the food that the kids get at school. Um, he, you know, he had restaurants where he sort of gave, was giving people a second chance by teaching them to be chefs, uh, you know, a whole, whole restaurant around that. And so, so I think just like he's, he's done some really great work trying mm-hmm. to try and improve uh, people's lives through food, which I think is incredibly important. Um, and, and, and then also, also just like, you know, ever since I was a teenager, when he first sort of became famous, I've been a, a fan of his work. Yeah. 
And the next, uh, Idris Elba, um, I was, I was originally going to say Will Smith. Um, but then Idris Elba is like, kind of like the, the, the British Will Smith, almost like inc- incredibly talented, incredibly handsome, um, excellent actor, excellent musician. Um, although I'm, so they're just like all these things, just like being good at all these things. And then also just being like an incredible human being, mm. um, by all accounts, I'd just be very, very interested to like how somebody can sort of have all these talents and all these different things and yeah. be so good at them. And then also just be sort of like grounded. And there's, there's, there's one thing that was actually said about Will Smith, but I think is, is, is relevant to Idris Elba too, which is that, you know, you can't be, well, it's very, you know, you probably haven't achieved true success if you achieve that success and then everybody resents you for it. Um, because mm. you've had to do things mm. you've had to like, mess people over or, you know, burn bridges or ruin relationships in order to achieve that success. Um, and I think one of the things, and it's probably not true. I'm sure there are some people who resent Will Smith for his, or Idris Elba for their success, but I think most people don't. They're just like, look at this amazing human being. They're like, how do you, how do you manage that? And, you know, be happy for their success. Yeah. And so I think that there's, it requires a very interesting, um, you know, human relationships and, and personality to be able to achieve incredible success, but then not have everybody be mad at you for it. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I like that. And then I said, or oh, maybe that would have been a good one to add on, but then the rock again, just like well, it's an incredible. Rock. You don't even have to explain the why. Uh, yeah, like, the I don't even need to explain that. I think I, like who wouldn't was, so I wouldn't have coffee with the rock. I'd have 12,000 calories yes. worth of pancakes. I want to be there for his um, cheat day yeah. that he advertises yeah. on Instagram every now and then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what, that's what I'd want to sit with the rock. For. It's funny. I have the rock on my three. So there we go. I have, <laughs> I have the queen. I actually have the queen and then I, I met the queen. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Uh, uh, we've got time for another story. Please. When I started my PhD, my PhD supervisor was getting, or it was part of a research group from the University of Bristol that was getting an award from the Queen for, the, for their research. Um, and it was basically in the neonatologists and obstetric groups at the University of Bristol basically improving the lives and survival of, of babies. So one of the guys on the team basically found out a lot of stuff that sort of reduced sudden infant death syndrome, cod wow, death. Cool. And when they got the invite to go to Buckingham Palace, each of the professors was allowed to take a trainee to go with them, even though I had nothing to do with any of this work. <laughs> like, take, I take zero credit for any of it. Yeah. Um, but so I just started my PhD and my PhD supervisor invited me along. And so then there was a big reception and afterwards, like the queen went around and shook everybody's hands and, and, and said, hello. There's these great photos that, that, I can, that I can send you. But it's basically, we're standing in this circle from the Bristol group. And the photographer is kind of behind me and I'm standing next to my PhD supervisor. And so you can see, you can't, you see the back of our heads and then you see the queen like between us mm. in front. And so the first picture, she's talking to my PhD supervisor. She's got this big smile on her face. She looks super happy, right? Obviously being uh, very entertained. And then when the next photo, she's sort of like turn and looking to me, like completely deadpan. Like, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> I have no idea. Like completely unimpressed. Like whatever I said, and I can't remember what I said, but like, you know, we are not amused. Absolutely. And you can like see it in her, in her face. So that's, that's one of my claims. So when I'm fame. having like, dinner and, with and, the queen, I'm not going to be bringing up your name. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure I was rapidly forgotten. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, that, that was a, <laughs> I know it's actually been surprising how many people I've had on the show that have either had dinner or lunch with the queen or met the queen. I'm like, really? That's actually kind of, I just think she's a, such an incredible 
person in her own right. Yeah, um, but, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did have Warren Buffett more just because I just think there's, I'm just fascinated by what he thinks. Um, but I don't know. He, he, he might be on or off depending on the mood I'm in. Um, uh-huh. He's not, he's not definitely there. Mate. All right. One more question. What advice could you give listeners on how to optimize their own lives? I thought about this a lot. and uh, I think I decided to double down on something we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. which is that if you're somebody who is focusing on truly optimizing, then I think it's important to not optimize by objectifying things that you should enjoy. That's my main. So like there are, there are times when tracking and data are important, but these are often things that are sort of basic human attributes and requirements for health that you should derive joy from that we stop deriving joy from because of the way that we objectify or quantify them. So I think overall we should be doing less of that. And I think the people who should be doing less of that probably make up a certain number of people listening to this. Absolutely. Oh, that just sounded so good. That was fantastic. Thanks for that. Because it's music to my ears because I feel like I'm one of those people that is all about joy and passion and wanting to enjoy. <laughs> and I feel like I'm always having these discussions with people that want to do it the other way. Um, so no, that, that's music to my ears, mate. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. What's next for you? You, you got a busy year ahead? What's, what's on, the, on the table this year? Yeah, I think um, travel and academic conferences are, are coming back. So there'll right. be a, more of that. But other than that, just more of the same. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll uh, sign up to any question. People can find me on there. Uh, Please do. Rate me for my lack of interest in sleep trackers. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but actually, you know, really, really looking forward to it. Maybe uh, travel and see some see some family uh, again. Haven't haven't done very much of that the last couple of years. No. So so that'll be nice. Looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that as well. Give my mum a hug. It's been been too long. Um, yeah. But but Tommy, mate, this has just been fantastic. And if you do ever get over to Florida, um, it'd, be, it'd be great to see you in person and even sit down and record one of these in person, I think would be fun. Um, yeah. Even though you stand the whole time, apparently. You stand, so <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll have to stand for the hour and a half. Um, That's fine, we won't tell anybody. We'll yeah. turn the cameras off. Yeah. Sit, super, super extra comfy couches. Exactly, I like that. There we go. All right, well, Tommy, thanks so much, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, it was just fantastic once again. For everybody listening, you can find all the show notes, timestamps, you know, coupon codes, all of that at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time. And I hope you will join Greg again very soon.